uh, as Mr. Justin's getting it going right now. Better hurry up. It's going to be a big influx. Uh, that room is there for toddlers or whatever else if you need to. It's not a request. It's an option. Does that make sense? I'm not requesting anybody go up there. Everybody that's been here long enough to understand we deal with noise and kids and, and energy, and we love it. Because if not, your church is dying. So we're good. Okay? So if you want to stay down here, that's fine. If you would rather have, rather have a spot where you can let them go, the service will be streaming. You'll be able to keep up with what's going on and maybe hang out with a couple other parents up there that might be able just to grieve and pray with you and maybe even cry depending on the week you've had or rejoice at what's coming. Um, but that room is up there uh, for you as well. So again, so glad to be here. Uh, with you all, we have spent about eight weeks uh, looking at Solomon's life, not just his life, but, but for the last eight weeks, we've actually just kind of been in the Proverbs trying to glean out some of the wisdom from Solomon. Today, we're going to talk about creating me a good heart. I was trying to find a word that would really kind of encompass everything we're going to deal with today and, and really the word good is about all you can come up with if something is good uh, it is sturdy it is steady it is courageous and brave it is true and so this word good just kind of brings into uh, the whole picture what I would like to to cover with you this morning as we look at the Proverbs we'll be in Proverbs chapter 15 I'm not fond of preaching like this I used to be more so when we would just kind of go through topical things and kind of bounce through Scripture. I don't like that as much anymore. But when you're dealing with the Proverbs, you almost have to because that's the way they look. So we'll be in Proverbs chapter 15 where we're going to read really three amazing verses. But getting there, we're going to have to talk about some of the other concepts in Scripture. We have to talk about those things. If you look, I told you about eight weeks. This is what we've gone through in Solomon's wisdom literature. We've talked about righteousness and generosity. We've talked about wisdom in the fear of the Lord, that idea of where wisdom comes from and how you and I take the knowledge that's given to us and how you and I use it in this world. The framework uh, of how you and I live is the idea of wisdom. What do we do with all this knowledge? Because you can have tons of knowledge and no wisdom and and, and honestly, in Scripture, if you read it, that's one of the signs of the ends of the times. There's ever-increasing knowledge, but there's no wisdom to go with it. So if wisdom is a desire to know the Lord and to be close to Him and to fear Him in all, if that's what wisdom is, then you and I would see how the world we live in right now, the more it peels away from the God of Scripture, the more knowledge it will have, but the less wisdom will be there to figure out how to use it. And so we've talked about wisdom and the fear of the Lord. we talked about the idea of eternal parenting, that you and I have been given this stewardship. And it's funny just to talk with parents as they're nearing one end of the spectrum where Allison and I are living on the, the end of the spectrum where you're trying to keep them from plugging things into light sockets or beating each other up or eating the wrong thing or choking on this or trying to get your one-year-old to stop cramming like 17 puffs in their mouth while nobody's looking. You're trying to figure out all those things. Stop eating paper off the floor in the living room, right? Like That's where we're going. And then some of you have kids in college and you're getting ready to let that arrow go into the world. The idea of eternal parenting is simply this. The stewardship doesn't stop there. You and I are preparing them for not only this life, but the next one. God sees what you and I are doing, and he blesses that as godly, amazing work. Do you understand that is ministry? This stewardship that you and I have been handed is ministry. And there are some days that it is the absolute hardest ministry you could be in. 
We talked shortly after about killing the idea of being passive. Talked with a buddy this week and it just comes up randomly, this idea of just the passive nature of, of churches and, and what we allow to go on and how we're okay with bringing certain things into our fellowship. And it's all the idea of a passive church culture, a, a passive male culture that's just kind of taking us over. Like this is, this is okay with God that we just sit back and we let things happen and we just kind of keep our mouth shut and we don't rock the boat. And, and this idea is totally antithetical to Scripture. The God of the universe we serve is also the God of the universe that made sure that the Holy Spirit placed in the Scripture David's mighty men. That passage has always been a wild one for me to read through it and just to see the heroic nature of the people that are mentioned there. But now it means something more to me as I've turned 40 and look at the world as I do right now as I have children and I'm watching them grow up as I have a better understanding of righteousness and and justice and evil and, and the vicious nature of where we're living through. There's a different perspective on that now. Listen, God loves the heart of a warrior. He's not into passivity. He's not into passive men that sit around and let their families get destroyed. He's not into passive men that sit around and watch their children get destroyed. They get eat up by entertainment. They get uh, eat up and, and tempted by things that shouldn't be there. He is not into that. To passive men that watch their churches struggle and suffer and just sit back and do nothing about it. This is not the God we serve. Jesus was meek. He was passive. He engaged every opportunity. Everything that was set in front of him to engage, he engaged it. He was not passive. He was on mission. He was meek. He was loving. He was kind. And there were moments of intense ferocity in the life that he lived. You and I need to find people like that. We need to do life with people like that. We need to become people like that. We talked about the idea of scattered streams. And these things in Proverbs, uh, he's writing, you know, there's, there's 31 of them to read through. And he's writing just all of these snippets from here to here to here to here to here. And if you go through Proverbs, you're going to find about... Ten-ish themes. All of these things are covered: being a right, being righteous, being generous. Uh, uh, the idea of how we parent, the idea of of how active we are in this life, right? How you and I go get it to number the days, to redeem the days. Why? Because they're running out and they're evil if they just come to us. It also talks a lot about sexual purity. For the young ones that are here, and you're looking into that direction, and you've been handed uh, in our culture this idea of of sex constantly. I mean, you can't get away from. It. The even stuff on Nickelodeon and Disney. We're talking about middle schoolers that identify with a sexual preference in their shows. That's what they're pushing. So if that's what culture is giving us, we need to deal with those things in the church as our children are dealing with them. The idea that someone 10, 11, and 12 would start to identify a certain way that has to do with sexual attraction ought to trouble everybody. So this is dealt with in Proverbs. Why? Because Solomon knew the wisdom of doing it God's way. So we talk about scattered streams. The violations of, of, of sexual impurity that will rob your honor, your years, your strength. It basically robs your life. If you choose that road today or tomorrow, you will lose things that cannot be returned. You will use, lose years, time, God can redeem your story and make it something beautiful. But if you choose that going forward, you have lined up for the recourse that is hard to deal with. It's a miracle to see people overcome it. 
just like it is to watch someone say they were healed with cancer. An absolute miracle. Then we talked last week about choosing your words. So as we walk through Proverbs, what do we see? The wisdom and how we speak. It would be wise for all of us to memorize Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those of you who love to speak like I do need to understand you are going to eat its fruit. So we could sum up all of last week's sermon like this. If you love to talk and you love to type and you love to text, understand something. You're going to eat the fruit of what you dole out. Life or death. We're going to eat that fruit. For someone that speaks for a living. A pastor. A politician. A teacher. If you're in some kind of customer service industry. Where you speak for a living. You need to understand. Death and life are being doled out by you constantly. And you and I are going to eat that fruit. I want to eat the fruit of life. I want to give it for other people to partake in. I want to be a refuge for them in a world that's very hard and very nasty and very mean. When they speak to me, I want them to receive life. Even if it's corrective, it should be life-giving. And so that's what we've talked about. Today we land in the idea of the heart. And I tried hard uh, in the last couple of days, I tried hard to come up with, since we're in the Old Testament, to come up with the Jewish idea when the writers of the scriptures, when the writers of Proverbs are writing about the heart, what are, what are they trying to achieve? So I found a couple of quotes from people that are, are Jewish or have an understanding of the Jewish scriptures. Uh, Barbara Caden says this, in Jewish tradition, the heart is the seat of all emotions. The heart sees, hears, speaks, falls, stands, rejoices, comforts. Sorrows. In Judaism, our hearts are the vessel of both our feelings and our wisdom. So when you and I are reading the Proverbs and the word heart comes up, there's, there's just a much bigger idea to it than just emotional this or emotional that. Or that wonderful, amazing organ that's about the size of your fist that God placed there that does all this miraculous stuff on repeat without you even ever, ever saying thank you, right? Like there's so much more to that idea of the heart in Scripture. Teach us to number our days that we may attain a heart of wisdom. That is Psalm uh, chapter 90 verse 12. So what do we see? That something in the heart of us is building wisdom, which means there's activity that comes along with it. Remember, wisdom is how you and I operate with the world. So if we're trying to, to attain a heart of wisdom, what is that telling us? There's going to teach us how to operate with this world, how you wake up on a Monday, how you go to sleep on a Friday. Whatever is, is in your heart is going to be brought out. One of the other quotes said this. For our ancient Bible ancestors, the heart was a profound center of wisdom, skill, generosity, and bravery. Howard Goldsmith made that comment. And so when we talk about the heart, I almost wonder if there's not this Trinitarian idea. And I'm not willing to stake any claim on, on, on this as it's just something I've been brewing over. But when you and I get into uh, looking at and dealing with ourselves... We see the heart, right? We see the mind. Then we see the soul. And I wonder if there's not some Trinitarian piece in all of that that makes it look like something of the God where there's this heart, mind, and soul, and yet they make up one person. You can't cut you open and, and find your soul. 
cut your brain open and find where you are in that. You and I are talking about something bigger than that. And when we talk about the heart today in Proverbs, we're talking about this, this desire, this position within us that springs forth everything else. If, if skill and generosity are there, it means my heart dictates the way I live. If we're talking about the idea of skill, then it means my heart dictates a lot of how I do uh, with interacting with life, whether it be what I do for a living, how I operate in my home, how I take care of my wife and my children. So we're talking about these wonderful things that make up the you, the me. The, prom, the person of me is seen in my heart. So as we talk through the idea of what comes up in the heart of man and how we guard it, how we take care of it, the promises God has for us and the protections that come with it, we need to start with this idea. This is where I spring from. It's where you spring from. The position in you that deals with skill and wisdom and generosity and bravery all come from the heart. But there's a problem. There's a big problem. There's a problem with me. There's a problem within me. There's a problem within you. What does Jeremiah have to say about our heart? Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Proverbs 17, 3 says it this way. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests the heart. So if this peace within me, where all my skill and bravery and generosity and how I interact with the world and my wisdom come from, if that peace within me is, is seen and written about through the Proverbs and through the Jews that we are learning from in all of this, God has something to say about that. And this drives us right into the gospel. It also drives us into a lot of the wisdom that we need to sift through in today's environment. Show of hands. How many times have you heard someone tell you to do what makes you happy? How many times have you heard someone say, follow your heart? Do you see the problem with that now? What does God have to say about my heart? He says it's wicked. Not only that, he says it's desperately wicked. It's deceiving. Let me ask you something. If, if we're looking at this in, in kind of a Trinitarian idea, and I have my heart, my mind, and my soul, do you think my heart can trick my mind? Yes. Yes. It can make me feel things that shouldn't be there. It's why the Bible says take every thought captive. And then what do you do with that captivity in your mind? You sift it through what you know to be true. You sift it through truth. Because if my heart tells me to do something that God tells me not to do, I better not follow my heart. I better not do what makes me happy. The self-help gurus love this kind of language. You want to know why they love it? Because it's so easy. It's easy. And it makes people feel good. How about this one? You're fine the way you are. Listen, if we're being nice to people horizontally and making that statement, making friends and making people, there's, there's some okayness to that. But if we're talking in terms of or, uh, or vertically between us and God, you have set them up for tremendous failure. You've set them up to go to hell 
Because God says our heart is deceptive, desperately wicked, evil. Proverbs 17 tells us he tests the heart. So if the God of the universe is monitoring my heart, if he is testing it, what does he see? I listed fear first. And I did that on purpose. I did that partly because of the, the time we're living in right now where fear is, is selling things. It's selling stuff constantly. Fear of this, fear of losing that, fear of this. Like people use it. But I also listed it first. Why? Because I can't think of another thing in Scripture that 365 times it tells us to, to work against. Been some really biblically smart people say the Bible says one day for, for or once for every day of the year to fear not. If that's the case, man, I can't think of anything else that 365 times God looks at you and I and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So if God looks into my heart and there's this one warning that he gives constantly, I'm going to list it first. What's he going to look at when he sees my heart? Is he going to see fear first? Fear makes you and I do all kinds of things. It will make us do a lot of unbiblical things. It will make us uh, uh, very... It'll rob us of life. Let me just put it that way. That's the best I can do. Because, see, Dr. Falwell used to tell us that every man or woman is indestructible until God has finished using them. That's what he told 19 and 20-year-olds for years, 30, 40 years. You are indestructible until God has finished using you. On mission for the Lord, on mission for Christ. There's never a truer statement been said. That is hard to deal with, though. Because life can be scary. So God looks at us and he says, fear not. Fear not. Fear not. I've never actually done the count. I trust some of the people that posted. I hope they've done the count. But even if it's 300 times, it don't matter. It's a lot of times to be reminded, do not fear. What else would he find there on the natural heart that you and I were born with? He would find anger. I've told you before, 2 Timothy chapter 3, one of the words in there that just continues to blow my mind is unappeasable. It's anger that can't be appeased. It just wants to vent. It wants to be angry. It wants to hurt. Why? Because people are hurting. And instead of seeing you be joy-filled and peaceful, they would rather you hurt too. Maybe even join into their wickedness. Maybe even join into their hurting of others. Would God see Hatred. We've talked about this before. The idea of, of, of racism in the church. And we look back and we see all of these issues that have come out of people manipulating scripture. And I would pitch to you, it also come out of the idea when the church started to dabble in Darwinism. See, Charles Darwin's got a pass. So did Margaret Sanger. Because they believed the way people wanted to shield them from taking the full brunt of what they actually said. Charles Darwin was a racist. His evolutionary theory just put it into practice. So everybody could deal with, deal with it. You know, the European man is, is higher up on the scale than the African. Because evolutionary processes had brought them through, and now they were just on a little bit higher plane. Like, the church has done some wicked things. But it pales in comparison to what the world has done. Nazi Germany, they looked at the Jews and just said they weren't people, so they did whatever they want to them. Evolutionary idea was all in that. We're ascending, we're, we're bringing about a better race, we're bringing about a better person, and because of that, whatever happens, whatever goes on over here is just fine. 
So yeah, the church has done some evil things. There have been some people within the church that have pitched some evil things. They have taken descriptive passages out of scripture about what the world was really like. And they made them prescriptive like God had said for it to be this way. But it's just not the case. Margaret Sanger took it to the next level. The lady that started Planned Parenthood. You know, I'm, I'm just bringing this stuff up because you and I are hearing it every day in the news. But we're only getting half the story. Nobody's talking about shutting Planned Parenthood down on any news organization right now. Even though the woman that started that was an absolute racist. Look up her quotes. They put them in minority communities so that they could kill minority babies. But she was on the right side of the politics of things. And so she gets a pass. Hatred. Is God going to see hatred in my heart? Is he going to see racism in my heart? Is he going to see me uh, picking and choosing who I love based off of their economic status, what I think they can do for me, the color of their skin, or where they grew up? If he is, you and I are seeing things that are not biblical. Is he going to see jealousy? you understand the power of jealousy? Do you understand how jealousy robs you and I of seeing not only our own blessings, but being able to look over at our neighbor, our brother, or our sister and say, man, I am so glad God is blessing you. I'm so glad you got that promotion. I'm so glad you got a nice house. I'm so glad you got another car. I'm so glad you got this. I am so glad that the Lord is just pouring it out on you. Use it wisely. Make sure you're blessed eternally for it. But man, that is amazing. Jealousy robs you and I of that idea. You can't even do it. We covet what they have. Makes us angry at them. Makes me feel like they, they, they have uh, cheated me out of something. The mixture and the undercurrent of our culture right now has a lot of this in it. I want what they have. And instead of working hard to get it, I'm just going to throw a fit until I do. Idolatry, where you and I look at anything outside of uh, honoring and worshiping Jesus Christ as God, honoring and worshiping God as our Lord, any idol that we've created. We have to be very, very careful about what we are spending most of our time dealing with, what we are uh, giving most of our money and our time and our talent to, what we are pursuing in life. We'll see later uh, with the heart, the idea of uh, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That is a quote from Christ. We'll see that. What about lust? We live in a world of lust. I'm going to tell this story because it's funny. My mom is probably watching right now. She's a wonderful lady. She texted my aunt the other day and a picture shot through that should not have been there. She had some virus on her phone that had pulled up something and shot it to my wonderfully Christian 65-year-old aunt. Needless to say, they were at Sprint that night for hours trying to figure out what this virus was and where it was on her phone. It's up the idea of lust. It's so pervasive that people are trying to put temptation right in front of you. They'll do it for free. Not something she clicked on. Not something she wanted. But somebody found a way to put that there. Why? Because they know there's money to be made because lust is rampant. Being far more serious with this, if you wanted to talk about all the trafficking that's going on in the world right now. Middle school knows about it. High school knows about it. You all should know about it. You need to figure out what's going on. We live in a city where three interstates run through it, so you can guarantee it's happening here. They're pulling people off the border right now. They're being brought in to do this kind of trafficking. And it all stems 
from lust and pornography. We're hurting and harming young ones. The idea, just to be really honest, the idea that nobody is being hung in the street for partaking in these crimes ought to outrage every one of us. Every person picked up sex trafficking a minor should be publicly executed as soon as a trial could be had. You don't mess with stuff like that. You give them a chance to get right with their God. But you can't redeem those qualities. It ought to be an outrage. And it all stems because in my nasty heart there is an undercurrent of lust. How about pride? Anything that sets me in the position where I want to be worshipped. Anything that sets me in the position where God is secondary and I am primary is pride. It was the sin of the devil. And then there's deception, the manipulation of words and circumstances and whatever else you could do to try to get your way. It's all there in that heart, you and I. This is the this is the fountain you and I naturally spring from. It's one of the reasons why we should be less surprised when the world acts like the world. We should be less surprised. As a matter of fact, we ought to be surprised that, that it's not like the almost the days of Judges or the days of Noah. We ought to be really surprised that the, the image of God on most people keeps them curtailed some of this evil back. We sh that should be what surprises us when we look at the world. It shouldn't be how evil it is. It ought to be how good it is. The image of God is still playing on people's minds and hearts where they're not as evil as they want to be. That should bring us joy. Instead of frustrating us so much when we expect the world to act like Christians. We would be so much better off if we expected Christians to act like Christians and we held them accountable for that. And then when we dealt with the world, we expected the worst. And then when it come out a little better than that, we were like, it wasn't too bad. Huh. Staked another one. Today was a good day. This idea that there's just deception there. There's evil there. It is who I am. There is a problem in me, but there's also a progress. There's a progress in me. Psalm 51, verse 10. Makes me want to weep thinking about it. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. It's the prayer of salvation. That's the moment. I don't have a clean heart, God. I need one. Create it in me. Put it in me. Do something. Do a work, Lord. This is David crying out after making the most horrible of sins happen. After committing three or four in a row that made him an adulterer, a murderer, a liar. All of these things going on. And when the prophet Nathan comes in and he calls him to repentance, this is how you repent. Well, Lord, if Bathsheba hadn't been made on the roof, I'd never even seen her. Call it 75-25, Lord. Right? 75 on me, of course, because I'm an honorable guy, but 25 on her. That's not how this works. The repentance is creating me a clean heart. I have sinned against you and you alone. That is salvation. There's a progress to us, and it starts with that prayer, the salvation prayer. I want you to be king, Lord. I don't want my way anymore because it's making a mess. 
It's nasty. It's horrible. It trips me up. It hurts other people. There is a prayer of salvation. Now, it's not a cookie cutter thing that you could just repeat after someone and get stamped like a, like a monopoly card for get out of hell free. That's not how this works. Somebody can't drag you to an altar, kick you down and tell you to pray something. And God says, oh, you're one of my children. Now, no, it is the cry of the heart. Sometimes it's just the weeping of someone that can't even get the words out. Because they've seen their evil and their wickedness and they've seen the glory of God and they know that the only bridge there is for him to be merciful and to create in them something that is not there. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, I will give a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. He goes on to say, I'll remove the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. Regeneration. Ephesians says before you and I come to that point of salvation, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. The idea of regeneration is God has taken something dead and made it alive. You see, there's progress out of this heart that you and I live with. Salvation, regeneration. The next one would be sanctification. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. We need to be vigilant in how we take care of our heart. What is that? That is sanctification. You and I, the moment we get saved, we are justified in the presence of God. If you were to die right then, you would go to heaven. Jesus' blood has done it all. But if you have time between that moment and meeting your Lord, that process of looking more like Jesus is sanctification. If we were to break it down today and make it look like a sermon, it would look like this. Sanctification is diligently watching my heart and making sure that my desires, my needs, those yearnings, all those sinful things we just mentioned, when they come up, they're killed. Or when my heart brings them up, my mind grabs them and catches them and sifts them and says, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't do this thing. This is not godly. And it removes it. And then the mind overrides the heart. Keep your heart with all what? Diligence, vigilance, attentiveness. This is not a passive product. Turning on, not a passive process. Turning on the TV and just letting whatever is there flow into here is not guarding your heart. Opening up yourself to people that don't have your best interest. Fellowshipping with them as if they were a safe brother or sister. That is not guarding your heart. When you get into positions with people that don't know the Lord and don't want to serve Him. Or maybe they are backslidden and they say that they do know the Lord. When you get into those positions, you are not in a fellowship position. You are in a position of vigilance. What they say, what they do, how try to influence you all have to be sifted. If you come here and you walk through those doors, we should be able to let our guard down. This should be fellowship with people that love the Lord. I know this, most of you that keep coming back, you're not here for the uplifting and fluffy sermons that we dole out weekly. You're here because you want to know the Lord. And you want your life to mean something. So when you walk in the door, we ought to be able to let the guard down. And just relax. Just let that spirit relax just long enough to enjoy some fellowship and some love and some care. How about the last one? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does that mean? As far as what this sermon looks like, it means you and I need to monitor our actions. Where my money goes, where my time goes, where my calendar goes will tell me where my heart is. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I need to bear fruit. From salvation to regeneration to sanctification. Watch how my life is bearing fruit. 
And in that process, there is a progress so that that nasty old me is shut to the side. And when he rears his head, he is hopefully, quickly put back in his place. Which necessarily needs to be back on the cross with Christ. That's where that heart goes. It needs to be there until the Lord bears it for good. So we've got this heart that is me. We've got this problem that is within me. We've got this progress, though, that we can look to, that we can have hope in. But there's also protection. Here's where Proverbs 15 comes in. There are benefits to a solid seeding of our will and our emotions in godly things. Proverbs 14.30 says this. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. But envy, but envy makes the bones rot. You see, there's physical protection to a heart that's centered in what God has for you and I. It can't be centered in anything else in the world. And how many times do we have to draw these comparisons? But I hope you see them often. The idea of, of things in life that look like they ought to be easy. They're wealthy. Their life is easy. They play a sport for a living. They're actors. They have fan clubs. Like all of this stuff. They're famous. They're on TikTok with 70 billion users. Whatever. And you look and you think, man, there ought to be peace there. Here's the problem. There is not. I don't know how many more examples we need before you and I said, you know what? What the world is selling is not what brings peace and joy and strength and courage. It might feel good for a while, but boy, it sure does leave a lasting aftertaste of want and desire. Tranquil heart gives life. But envy makes the bones rot. Jealousy, envy, covetousness, these things that God forbids actually make our bones rot. They make our life sour. They hurt. They hurt the body, but a tranquil heart gives life. I love that. Proverbs 15, verses 13 to 15 say this. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but I love this. Did you read what was next? Did you jump ahead of me? I hope you did. But the cheerful heart is what? A continual feast. What if there's not much food on the table? Talk to some of the missionaries around the world that know the Lord. Ask them what kind of continual feast they live with. They have so much less than what we have. Talk to the people in the past. You and I live better than kings. We live better than Solomon. He did not have air conditioning. He didn't have a fridge. He wasn't frustrated when the power went out and he lost all his food. That was his daily life. The richest man ever lived. We live better than kings. And yet our desires and our wants and so many other things, our envy, all these other things, they break us. They break our bodies. Stress worries us. How many of you have had... I don't want to ask that question. That's dumb. I'm sorry. Point anybody right in the right now. You ever talk to someone that's had a panic attack? All it is is stress. A lot of times over something that will never happen. Now maybe I can ask you. When you hear what the symptoms are, like we run calls for this all the time. 18-year-old with chest pain. Uh, stuff goes, fire trucks running all over the place, sirens everywhere, uh, chest pain. 18 year old, they ain't having a heart attack. Somebody needs to get that kid to calm down. 
21 year old, tingling in arms and legs, show up. What's going on? Well, I fight this person. Man, it's a panic thing. The Lord in Proverbs was telling people how to deal with that. It's amazing. We do not have a clue what stress does to the body. And yet God was preparing us beforehand to understand it will kill you. Strokes, heart attacks, all this other craziness. But the heart of the cheerful has a continual feast. Have you feasted this week? Have you feasted in the last month? Have you feasted in the last year? Or something robbed you of your divine right given by God as a child of God? Have you been robbed? The heart is one that can live on a constant feast. 15, 15. A joyful heart is good medicine. How about Proverbs 17, 22? Man, what do you want to do to help somebody? How can you help somebody? A joyful heart is good medicine. If they don't have a joyful heart, maybe you could bring one in their presence for a couple minutes. A joyful heart is good medicine. What's the rest of it say, though? But a crushed spirit dries up the bones. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as a friend. Proverbs deals with the idea of being friendly and having friends. Joy-filled, grace-filled, loving people. Guess where they're going to land? All kinds of places. The highest of highs and the biggest offices of the land. Why? Because what they bring the world cannot duplicate. And so they will land in the presence of kings. You will find yourself a friend of the boss, a friend of the owner. You will find yourself in positions. If you do your job well and you bring a joyful spirit to places, you will find yourself in positions to excel because God said so. They don't love wicked, cranky, nasty people. Nobody does. Find yourself in the presence of kings. Bring an attitude to the table that cannot be found anywhere in the world. Isn't that an amazing thought? Purity of heart, whose speech is gracious. Let the king as a friend. Why? Because the king needs what you have to offer. You're a safe place. Your correction, your love, and your kindness cannot be duplicated. And finally, I like this. What are the products within me as we get ready to wrap up this morning? What will be the products within me that come out as you and I start to live? We've seen the, the protections that come. They're going to heal the body. They're going to take care of the heart. They're going to put you in positions to succeed. And all you have to do is live out the Christian way. But what happens now? What are the products? What does it look like? Well, Matthew 5, 8 says this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What's the first thing that's going to come when you and I start dealing with our heart the way we ought to? Access to God and vision. Of God. Where does he want you to go? What does he want you to do? Who does he want you to love? Who does he want you to serve? Where are you going in life? That comes from the pure of heart. How about Psalm 34, 18? The Lord is near to the broken heart. And what else comes? Intimacy. Intimacy. Matthew chapter 5 says, Blessed are those who mourn wife, for they shall be comforted. You say, well, that doesn't sound like kind of the rest of the message today. Let me ask you something. If you and I have a real perspective of who we are 
who God is and we look at our neighbor and we know a real perspective of who they are and what they've got going through, what they're going through in their life, how should we react to that? Mourning should be the life of a Christian. That brokenheartedness of what's going on around us ought to weigh on us. It ought to be heavy. You have extra vision. You don't get to meander around like somebody that doesn't have a clue what's going on. People are dying and going to hell. People are making decisions that are hurting their children and their families. People are making decisions that are hurting their nation. They're making decisions that justice is just out the window. That should grieve us. So there should be mourning. But God promises those that are brokenhearted, those that grieve, they will be comforted. And not by anything, and not by anyone, but by Him. Jesus was the most joy-filled man to ever live. And I guarantee you, He grieved more than any of us will ever understand. Both of those things can come together because our vision is different than the world's. Why? Because you've been given eyes to see. Their struggles and they're real. Intimacy comes from being brokenhearted. How about Proverbs chapter uh, 3, verses 5 and 6? What you learned in a while, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. So what else comes with a clean and pure heart? What else comes with having a heart that trusts in the Lord direction? Direction. I love this one, Psalm 26, 1 and 2. Prove me, try me, test my heart. I've already told you what that's like in the flesh. It's a disaster. But when you and I get our heart right with the Lord, what happens then? You and I are given courage. Hebrews says to come boldly into the throne room of God if you have a need and ask. That doesn't come cowering all the time and being afraid of the Lord. There are certain times when your life is right and your spirit is right. You're loving the Lord. You're serving Him. And so you could just kind of stand there and say, try me, test me. Lord, make sure there's nothing grievous or wrong in me. But it brings about courage because you and I have, we've not earned the right to be there, but we've been given that right. Jesus earned it and then gave it to you. And then he says, come boldly into the throne. So you and I can see all of our wickedness and we can say, but it's been covered, it's been forgiven. How about this one, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What are you going to be given with a heart that loves the Lord? Satisfaction. That this world cannot understand. What do you need to do that? You need to delight yourself in the Lord. You need to see His goodness and love Him and be involved in His mission and be close to Him. And in that delight, He will give you satisfaction. What you have in front of you will be enough to enjoy and to love and to live the life Jesus promised, the abundant life. And finally, as they come this morning, Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. What else does the Lord give? Unshakable peace. You see, there's a stark difference between how the world operates to adversity, how the world operates to lack, how the world operates in the realm of need, than there is in the Christian family, in the Christian world. Struggles come up, bad news is given, and yet when you talk to Christian people, they're here in this church, they're in other churches, you work with some of them, and you've said, man, your life was just given a really hard bit of information. How are you handling it like that? 
So, man, your past is hard. So-and-so did this. You were hurt. Your parents left. Somebody hated you. Somebody despised. Like, how do you do all this stuff? The byproduct of being a believer and seeing the full picture is that God's goodness reigns from start to finish. That he promises to give so much more than what the world has to offer. He promises to give more than I've ever given him. He promises for all of eternity, every lack or every need I ever had will just disappear. And between then and now, his presence shows up. And he not only makes it livable, but he gives me the abundant life in it. You always don't have to have your circumstances changed. Sometimes you and I need to change in the middle of our circumstances. And God says, I'll do that too. I'll make you strong. I'll make you sturdy. I'll make you courageous. I'll give you wisdom. I will be there with you. And in those moments, you and I look like Job. Job lost a lot. The world could not comprehend all the things that he had lost. And yet the idea was there was, even in his grief, there was peace. And later on in his life, he would be one of the only people ever to proclaim, prior to talking to Jesus, that he had actually talked to God. Because God showed up and started to answer his questions, started to comfort him, love him, and then blessed him beyond his wildest dreams. Would you stand with me this morning as they play? If this heart is something that's foreign to you, if you don't have peace or courage, if you're worried, if you're always just upset or, or, or you're always frustrated with what you have or don't have or whatever else, if you're lacking access to who God is or intimacy with him, if you're worried about where you're going in life, these things come from a heart that knows God, knows peace, and knows joy. If you need that today, don't leave today without asking someone about that. Talk to someone. You can come forward and you can pray and you can be met here by someone. Or you can just wait around and hang and, and just ask questions later. But if you don't know these things, now is the time to get those thoughts and prayers answered.